Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We are continuing in a series of studies in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew found in chapters 5, 6, and 7. However, today we start on something of a mini-series within the series, uh, and that has to do with the Lord's Prayer. So today we are going to be focusing our attention specifically on verse 9. We will read verses 7 through 15. So give careful attention to the reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the Word of God. Before we take up our study of it, let's pray together. Father, we come to your Word hungry to be fed by you. And we pray, O God, that you would feed us on your Word. We pray that you would open our minds to understand it, open our hearts to receive it, and to bow to your authority in it. For this is your Word. And we pray, Father, that you would speak to us as we study it, instruct us, encourage us, convict us, and feed us on your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we have just reached the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, uh, Jesus has already taught us a great deal about prayer, as we've seen in the preceding weeks. If you've been here for the series Uh, Jesus taught us, for instance, that prayer is not to be hypocritical like the Pharisees' prayer, which was done for the approval of others, but it is to be sincere. It is not to be mechanical like the pagans' prayer who thought that they would be heard for their many words, but it is to be thoughtful. Uh, We pray not in order to impress others, but to speak to God. We pray not in order to manipulate God, but to commune with Him, to enjoy fellowship with Him, which is the privilege that we have as His children. Now, Jesus phrased uh, verses 7 and 8 primarily in negative terms. Do not heap up empty phrases. Do not be like them because God knows, our Father knows what we need before uh, before we ask Him. Well, here, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer actually gives positive instruction to his disciples and through Scripture to us about what prayer is to be. Now, we need to notice that Jesus says in verse 9, pray then like this, or pray in this way. Jesus does not say pray this. 
he says, pray like this. In other words, what Jesus gives here is a pattern. It is a template for prayer. It is a framework or an outline to guide us in our praying. Now, that's not to say that we can't actually pray this prayer as Jesus gave it, as we, in fact, do every week here, closing out the pastoral prayer by praying the Lord's Prayer together. Nothing wrong with praying this prayer, but we do need to keep in mind that Jesus gave it to us as an outline for prayer. Some major headings to be covered in prayer, if you will. As we look at this, the, the Lord's Prayer, it turns out there are a number of petitions in it, six petitions, six things that we ask of God, and they're introduced by a preface or an address. And it is that preface, our Father in Heaven, that we will look at today. Before we get into uh, that particular phrase, however, it's worth noting the structure of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the first three petitions are Godward in their focus. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the remainder are uh, focused on us, focused on our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, it's also worth noting, by comparing the Lord's Prayer to the Ten Commandments, that's also the structure of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments focusing on God and our relationship to God, and then the last six of the Ten Commandments focusing on our fellow man and our relationships among one another. Well, So, so is the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. The priority goes to those petitions that are Godward in their focus. The name of God, the kingdom of God. The will of God. And then the last three have to do with us, with our daily bread, our sins, our struggling against evil and against temptation in the world. Well, this morning what we want to do is look at the opening words, the preface that Jesus gives to us here. Our Father in heaven, or our Father uh, which art in heaven, or who art in heaven, if we want to uh, speak Elizabethan English. By the way, a lot of people say the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, who, properly being a personal pronoun relating to our Father, may wonder, why do we say our Father which art in heaven? Well, we say it that way because that's the way it is in the King James, and that's the version most people remember or know, uh, and so we say it that way, but uh, either way certainly is fine. Uh, the English Standard Version, as do most other modern translations, take care of that problem by simply rendering it our Father in heaven. And so as we look at this um, preface, this address to God, as we come to him in the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus gives it to us, what we learn from it, from this opening, is this, that as Christians, we should approach God both with a warm intimacy and with a worshipful reverence. As Christians, we approach God with both a warm intimacy, but also with a worshipful reverence. First of all, as Christians, we have the privilege of praying to God with a warm and familiar intimacy. Jesus says here uh, to his disciples that we are to address God as our Father. Now, Old Testament Jews, uh, and even up to this point uh, in early in the New Testament, 
the Jews were not unfamiliar with the idea of God as father, the father of the nation of Israel, the father of his people. That was not a foreign concept to them. However, what was unusual and what is immediately apparent to them and stands out to them and what Jesus says here, what was unusual was to address God directly and personally in prayer as Father, our Father. Generally, they would address God, speak to Him as Sovereign Lord, as King of the universe. Now, nothing wrong with those titles, but they're focusing on the majesty of God. Uh, They communicate something of a sense of, of distance. And Jesus immediately says that we can address God, we are to address God as Father in prayer. And so for Jesus to say that was uh, bluntly stunning, that Jesus would teach his disciples to pray in such familiar, such intimate terms with the living God. Now, we recognize for Jesus to pray our Father, uh, my Father in his case, is one thing. Because Jesus bears a unique relationship to God as his Father. Jesus is the eternal, eternally begotten Son, second person of the Trinity, uh, Son of his Father, uh, not created, but eternally begotten, the Son of, of his Father within the Trinity. Uh, and that relationship is unique. And in fact, Jesus makes a distinction between who we are as children of God adopted and who he is as the eternally begotten son of the father. You may recall in John chapter 20, uh, in the garden, Jesus meets Mary Magdalene after his resurrection. And he says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. And so Jesus, in other words, is implying a distinction God is their father, he is their God, and yet the way that Jesus relates to his heavenly father is distinct from and unique compared to the way that you and I as adopted children of God relate to God as our heavenly father. Nevertheless, Jesus teaching his disciples to pray invites them and invites us into that same warm and close and intimate and familiar relationship with his heavenly father that he himself Enjoys. We have that privilege with Jesus of addressing God as Father. Now, having said that, it's important to clarify who it is that biblically has the right to address God as Father. Uh, there's a common notion about well, that God is everyone's Father. Uh, all people have God as their Father. Uh, biblically speaking, that simply is not true, at least not in this sense. Now, it is true that the scriptures recognize a sense of the fatherhood of God over all people, over all creation. If you'll turn uh, to Acts chapter 17, where Paul is in Athens addressing the Areopagus at Morris Hill, uh, Jesus, or, or Paul here, begins by speaking to them about this inscription, this altar, to the unknown God. And uh, Paul, uh, seeing that as his opportunity, says, let me tell you about this God you say you don't know. And he begins to speak to them about the one true and living God, who he is, and how he created the world and, and made from one man every nation of mankind, and so forth. And then in verse 29, he says, being then God's offspring, quoting one of their poets, a pagan poet, in verse 28, we are indeed his offspring, 
Paul says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That really clinches his, his sermon, his uh, appeal to them, and then it records their reaction to him in the end of the chapter. But what's Paul saying? Well, he acknowledges, quoting one of their poets, that there is a sense in which every person, Christian, non-Christian, is the offspring, the child of God, in the sense that God is our creator, creator of all people. God is the sustainer of all people. In fact, we saw earlier on the, in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, Jesus speaks of his Father sending rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. God provides for those who curse his name. God is benevolent toward those who do not know him in Christ Jesus. And so, yes, there is a general sense in which God is the Father of all people. However, the sense in which Jesus speaks of it here has to do with that unique relationship that we have with God in him, in and through Christ. This more personal, this more intimate appeal to God, relationship to God as our father, as one who has a unique relationship to us. And so the privilege of approaching God as Father in this close sense of which Jesus speaks of it here in the Sermon on the Mount is for those who are in Christ, those whose sins have been forgiven, uh, those for whom that, that gap, that vast chasm or canyon created by sin has been bridged by the Lord Jesus. And the Scriptures also make this distinction. If you'll turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, 1 John 3, verse 1. John says uh, in this passage, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You sense his, his amazement there, the love of God, that we should be called children of of God, and so we are, he says in astonishment. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, notice, he makes a distinction here that we have this privilege in God's love of being his children, but then he immediately speaks of the world not knowing us, those who are not God's children. So he makes a distinction between those who are the children of God and the world who are not the children of God, not in this saving sense, not in this close sense of truly having God as our Father. And so this privilege of calling God Father and truly being his children is reserved for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we need to notice a couple things about this passage. First of all, we need to recognize what, what is conveyed to us in the idea of God as our Father. For some people, the idea of a Father is not a pleasant association. In fact, it may be a very painful association. And for some, the appeal to God as Father is not something endearing or attractive, but uh, maybe ambivalent at best and, and frightening at worst. But we need to recognize what the Bible means when it 
speaks of God as Father, or when Jesus instructs us to pray to God as our Father, he, it is appealing to God as Father in, in the best, in the fullest, in the most perfect sense of that word, of someone who watches over us, someone who counsels us, someone who provides for us, someone who protects us, someone who has our best interests at heart, someone who, if necessary, disciplines us. All of that that biblical fatherhood implies is embodied perfectly in God as our Heavenly Father. And so for all of us, but especially for those who, for whom the idea of father may be a painful idea, we need to shape thinking our thinking about fatherhood from the scriptures, as everything else. But what is a biblical father, even an earthly father? Biblically, what is he to be? Well, God embodies that, as we just described, perfectly, wisely, justly, with all grace, with all goodness, with all patience. Everything that a father should be, God is that perfectly, lovingly, and joyfully. And so Jesus is speaking to us here of a father, not as we may necessarily conceive, but as the scriptures tell us about God and tell us what fatherhood should be. There's something else about this that we should notice in this first part of the phrase. uh, When Jesus instructs us to address God as father, you'll notice here that he says, pray like this, our father. Now, remember, when we spoke about prayer uh, a couple weeks ago, when Jesus is saying, when you pray, uh, you mustn't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand out on the street corner. They love to pray for the purpose of being seen by others, for the purpose of impressing others. And Jesus says they have their reward. They're seen. People are duly impressed. People applaud them, think highly of them. That's what they wanted. That's what they got. But God isn't paying any attention. Jesus says in verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. The basis for our prayer life must be secret, private prayer. Any praying that we do in public should be the outcropping of that, like rock under the earth where some outcroppings come out and you see them occasionally, but most of the rock is hidden from sight. Well, that's our public prayer, the outcropping, uh, of which the majority, the vast part of it is, is hidden from view. But we say that Jesus certainly is not saying that we can't pray in public or that we shouldn't pray in public, although he is warning us when we pray publicly, pray with other people, to be careful that our concern is to commune with God not to impress those around us. But we come to the Lord's Prayer, and the very first word of the Lord's Prayer implies not isolation, not individualism, not being the lone Christian out there, but community. We don't pray, my Father, we pray, our Father. There is something about praying with other Christians that is indispensable to the Christian life. If you never pray with other believers, if you never pray publicly or semi-publicly, and by that I just mean with, with other people, maybe just two or three or four other people around you, if you never engage in prayer with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you are missing a key component of the Christian life. You are missing an important aspect of the Christian life. 
How many times, remember when we studied through the book of Acts, how many times do you find Christians gathered for prayer? If you are not praying regularly with other believers, you are missing an important part of the Christian life and an important means of growing in grace. Now, it might be when we gather on Sunday nights for prayer, we pray together. It might be in a small group or a Bible study or with some co-workers or whatever the case might be. But the Lord's Prayer, the very first word of the Lord's Prayer, implies gathered, implies community, not isolation. Our Father, coming together and addressing God together. And so as we come to the, even the first couple of words of the Lord's Prayer, our Father, there's much that Jesus is telling us here. The idea of community, the body coming together before our God, our Father in heaven, but also all that God is for us as a Father. But that's not all Jesus said here. He didn't say, Our Father, hallowed be your name. He said, Our Father in heaven. Now, while as Christians we have the privilege of approaching God in, in warm and intimate communion, it's also true that we have the obligation to approach God always in an attitude of worshipful reverence. In worshipful reverence. How many of you are familiar with the comic strip Kudzu? I don't know if you saw it this week. There was... Um, two or three days ago, where the Reverend Will B. Dunn is standing in his pulpit and addressing his congregation, and he says to them, Some of you are complaining that your prayers are not answered. Perhaps if you stopped addressing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord of all creation, the Alpha and the Omega, as dude. Well... If first century Jews could scarce conceive of addressing God directly as Father, we moderns, I think, tend to uh, lean toward the other end of the spectrum. We live in a very informal age. We live in an age when when businesses that uh, once addressed you as Mr. or Mrs. now call you by your first name. Uh, We live in an age that values immediacy and closeness not formality and distance. And so while first century Jews could scarce conceive of the idea of addressing God as Father, we, on the other hand, immediately assume God is our pal, and we, we have a difficult time, even in the modern evangelical church, in even closely adequately comprehending the majesty and the sovereignty and the holiness and the grandeur of this being to whom we so easily and even carelessly speak. There is certainly uh, the place for intimacy and familiarity in our prayer to God, and, and the words our Father imply that. However, there is, there is a line between being close and familiar and intimate with God and crossing that line into being too familiar or even disrespectful that we dare not cross. I would suggest when we've gone to addressing God as dude, we may have crossed that line. And while God is our Father, He always remains our Father in heaven. After all, this is the one whose presence made Mount Sinai quake. This is the one before whom the prophet Isaiah declared himself to be undone. This is the one whom the book of Hebrews describes as 
a consuming fire. This is the God who struck down Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, when perhaps in a spasm of over-familiarity, they offered to God unauthorized incense, and God struck them dead. This is the God who struck down Uzzah when the oxen stumbled and the Ark of the Covenant seemed to totter, and he reached out his hand and he dared to touch that sacred object, and God struck him down immediately, despite his good intentions. This is the God who struck down Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the church about the proceeds from the sales and property and what they had given to the church. God is our Father, but He dwells in heaven and He is not to be trifled with. We can be warm and close, personal with Him, which is not the same as being flippant, impersonal, or irreverent. After all, after the Lord cut down Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus chapter 10, he explained to their father, Aaron, now looking at their dead bodies, he explained to Aaron, through Moses, among those who are near me. Did you get that? Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Among those who are near me. And his sons were priests. They had the privilege of being near to God. They had the privilege of offering the sacrifices and burning the incense that most of the Israelites did not have. And yet it seemed maybe they presumed a little too much on the intimacy they had with God and with the things of God. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Now, we read earlier from Romans that uh, Paul elaborates that we are adopted. We have the the, the privilege of addressing God as his children and calling him Abba, Father. Abba being a term of endearment. Some have likened it to our term Papa or Daddy. Although we want to be careful that the element of disrespect is not lost. Abba, Father. Now, the warnings of God's character, He is in heaven, are not meant to discourage us from drawing near to God. Not meant to discourage us from addressing Him as Father. Just the opposite. They are to impress upon us how tremendous, how huge, how magnificent our privilege is that we are able to address so great a being as Father. A privilege, and yet one we dare not tread lightly, treat lightly or tread quickly upon. God is in heaven. He is our Father, but He is in heaven. And there is a tension there when we come to God in prayer, both between the, the immediacy and the intimacy and the warmth and the majesty and the glory. Theologically, we speak of the eminence of God and the transcendence of God. His eminence is His nearness, His closeness, that we can speak to Him at any time, that we can address Him as Father. His transcendence is His glory, His majesty, the distance, the awe, the wonder. And those two go together, and those two should be present in our prayer lives. I knew someone who used to open his prayers frequently with the words, Our God and Heavenly Father, 
However, uh, we can always pray the way Jesus instructed us to address God here, our Father in heaven. Either way, when we come to God in prayer, we give him thanks for the privilege of the intimacy that we have with him, all the while coming with the attitude of proper reverence and worship that we serve and we come before the Holy One of Israel. Well, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the first thing he does is to remind them of the one before whom they come, the God who is a father to his children and the God who reigns in heaven above. We dare not forget or lose sight of either one. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you both for your grace that invites us to draw near and for your glory and your majesty before which we tremble. We praise you, Lord, that it is our privilege to be your children. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in in him we belong to you, that you love us, that you welcome us as a father embraces and holds his children. And yet, Father, we do not lose sight of the fact that you are a sovereign and majestic God. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who called into being what was not, the one who has declared the end from the beginning, the one who knows all things, the one before even the thoughts and the hearts of men and women and children are known and laid bare. Father, we pray that we would not lose sight of either one, but we'd be blessed by both as we think about your nearness and your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.